Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards. Episode 75. The Greater Persecution. The last time was stopped around 1009 AD, when al-Hakim measures against Christians and Jews in a caliphate were about to hit their beak, was the destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem being the visible symbol. It might be hard to imagine for a modern audience the gravity and the significance behind that destruction. The Church of the Resurrection in Jerusalem was a powerful symbol for all Christians. A holy site where men and women worked their entire lives just to be able to visit. You literally got a special title to be addressed by if you visited, at least in Egypt. In our times, it would be like raising the Dome of the Rock in modern Jerusalem. A very provocative move that would dribble throughout the world and have international consequences. And so, when Al-Hakim issued his orders to destroy the church, it did dribble throughout the world and cause international consequences. The Byzantines responded by trade sanctions, which were painful, as Egypt was in the middle of a bad Nile flood at the moment, and there was food shortages. But more importantly, the news reached all the way to Rome and Europe. As a result, the Roman Pope at the time, Sergius IV, issued a circular letter calling for a holy war expelling the Muslims from the Holy Lands. Now naturally, the warlords of Europe sought the idea to be ridiculous and ignored it. But a hundred years later, when the conditions were just right, another campaign from another pope, Urban II, would launch the first crusade, citing the very same events. Also, to be historically accurate, as with all things crusade, the authenticity of the actual letter sent by Sergius is disputed. But either way, letter or no letter, the news would have definitely reached Rome, and it would have provoked a reaction. Now, for those paying close attention, you would remember that Al-Hakim maternal uncle was the patriarch of Jerusalem. He, as you would expect, opposed the destruction of the church. But it wasn't a problem for Al-Hakim. He was arrested and executed. The caliph other maternal uncle, the Melkite patriarch of Alexandria, 
Arsenius, was also arrested and executed in early 1010. We do not know the fate of his Christian mother at this point, whether she died naturally before or met the fate of her brothers, or if she lived and witnessed the turn of her son. Either way, family was not really an obstacle for al-Hakim, and you either braced the wisdom of his actions, or were executed without much of a gray in between. Into this dynamic, we have our Coptic Pope, Zechariah. Now, to fully appreciate his position, we have to go back a little bit to 1003 when he started his reign. In those early years before Al-Hakim's turn, the church was, quote, tranquil and in peace. Like I said last time, Al-Hakim was too busy burging the elites to worry about the Christians and Jews. But that peace and tranquility from external persecution did not mean that all was good. No. On the contrary, Michael, Bishop of Tennis, has a pretty harsh judgment on the state of things just prior to the persecution wave. He tells us that, quote, The Lord did not endure patiently the deeds of the shepherds who were at this time. And God brought down his wrath upon the church on account of them. They were removed from them, for they were as governors, who lorded over the priests. They invented pretexts for collecting money by every means. And they trafficked in the church of God an account of the love of silver and gold. And they sold the gift of God for money. Basically, what Michael tells us is that Al-Hakim's cruelty was a divine intervention to a church that was becoming too sick to operate. To support his thesis, he gives us three side stories which describes the state of things. The first is of a bishop who have gotten rich from simony and accumulated a vast sum of 40,000 dinars. On his deathbed, and wishing to leave the fortune to his brother, he divided the amounts into four piles and buried them, writing the locations on four different pieces of paper. The brother saw only managed to get hold of one, was Michael making the point that most of the fortune was literally in the dust. The second is of two bishops who fought over a village made of ten houses, and in their fight, one of them demolished the altar of a church that the other one built. Not only that, they, quote, did not disperse until blood had been shed between them, with the followers of each fighting each other in hand-to-hand combat on the streets of the village. So, really ugly stuff here. The third is of a poor monk named John, who saw how simony was rampant, and decided that he is more worthy to become a bishop than all these ignorant rich men buying the office. He assertively confronted Zechariah about his demands, but was turned away by the patriarch's relatives and handlers, specifically 
Khalil Bishop of Sakka, the nephew of the patriarch. He and John the Monk sharply clashed, and to sum up an extensive back and forth between them, Khalil hired Bedouin Arabs to beat up the monk, possibly with the intention to kill him, and John, after surviving the beating, went to Cairo and made it his purpose to make Al-Hakim arrest and execute the Coptic patriarch, Zachariah, who, to make it very clear, despite all the craziness and corruption around him, was more or less a passive observer, an elderly man who no one paid attention to. He was, in the words of the history of the patriarchs, very modest, a gentle lamp, and he had not done anything of what we have mentioned of his own accord. Even the bread which he ate, if they left him alone and did not give it to him, he would not ask for it. And likewise was the water which he drank. He was as one dumb. His relatives and disciples dominated him, and they were directing him in everything. As a result of his insignificance, Al-Hakim, throughout the beak of the persecution in 1009-1010, left him alone. Zachariah was a nobody who sat in an empty throne, an object of mockery at best, not cruelty. But eventually, he too was arrested in 1011, more or less due to the lobbying of Jean de Monk. But even then, Unlike Arsenius or Orestes, the Melkite patriarchs of Jerusalem and Alexandria, whom arrest and execution was swift, Zachariah's arrest was more or less about entertaining the caliph than removing a potential threat. Who, to make it clear, by 1011 was a little bored from his campaign against the Christian Jews, and his circle started looking into ways to make things interesting for him. We will get to the fate of Zachariah in a second, but before getting too far ahead, I would like to explore that persecution can be from the ground up, as best as possible, to see what did the everyday farmers and merchants experienced. For a start, we actually get a number of those who died from the Coptic sources, probably an educated guess at best that should serve as what did the people on the ground perceive, rather than a literal hit count. But it's a good start. That number was 18,000. For a reference, the semi-official number of the folks executed in the French Revolution reign of terror was around 17,000. So, similar. But when you look at a percentage of population-wise, Al-Hakim's reign was a step up the reign of terror. Further, the thing that really stood out was not the numbers per se, rather the randomness of the executions and the cruelty. For example, we are told of a slave boy who Al-Hakim butchered by his own hands very early in his reign, basically just because he can. As we mentioned before, if you're an elite early on, then the risk of losing your head was extremely high, regardless of your religion. 
But post 1007, things were much, much worse if you were a non-Muslim elite. We are told of a Coptic civil official, Abu Nagar Kabir, who Al-Hakim asked him to convert, to give him more responsibilities. When he politely declined, the Caliph ordered that he is to be lashed a thousand times. Naturally, he didn't come close to surviving the lashes, dying midway, to which Al-Hakim responded by lashing his dead body anyway to the full count of 1,000. Similarly, a colleague of his was burned for three straight days at the insistence of the Caliph. All in all, Michael, our primary source, estimates that there were 10 high-ranking Coptic officials in the administration of the Caliph. Four ended up converting to Islam under Bashar, and six ended up dying in a similar fashion to the above. Out of the four who converted, one was killed by the Caliph anyway. In the Coptic sources describing the reign, Al-Hakim was the ultimate personification of evil. There is quite an interesting passage from an eyewitness, which I'm going to quote in full, as in it we see how the Caliph was literally seen from the ground up. Quote, His two eyes were large and blue. If he looked at a man, he would tremble, owing to the greatness of his owl. His voice was loud and fearful. He used to observe the stars and study and study the false science. He used to serve a star called Saturn, as he imagined, and he used to continue turning around the eastern mountain at Musr at night. And with him there were three riders. Satan used to take for him the likeness of that star, and he, Al-Hakim, used to converse with Satan about many matters, and he used to offer to him sacrifices. He gave up the attire of kings on account of this, and he wore a black woolen garment. He let his hair grow until it descended on his shoulders. He gave up riding on horses and decorated mules, and only rode on a black donkey. He used to walk alone in every place, and often he took with him only a single rider. He used to walk in the streets at night and to listen to what men said about him in their houses. He had many spies and informers going around night and day who brought to him information and who did not hide from him anything of what happened in all the lands of Egypt. Men sought that the power of God has descended upon him. Now, note that last one. Men thought that the power of God had descended upon him. We will get to that next week. But for now, after the elite burgess, the normal folks started to feel the heat as well. First, it was random and knowing things that the caliph decided to enforce. 
like women are not allowed to go outside of their houses for any reason. A popular Egyptian dish named Molochia was banned. And like I said last week, the execution of every dog in Egypt. And after the dogs, swine were also targeted. Then, those decrees moved from crazy to specifically targeting the Christians and Jews. For example, there should be no visible crosses. And as an interesting side note here, visible crosses for Al-Hakim included ones that were tattooed on the hand, a Coptic tradition that persists to that day, which from Al-Hakim's decree we can surmise that it went back at least a thousand years. Then, as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was destroyed in 1009, we get more decrees. Christian and Jews have to wear different clothes. Liturgies were banned. Churches and synagogues were to be closed. And those decrees were incredibly economically destructive. As commerce and things like raisin, wine, honey, and meat was slowed down significantly. Also, as you would expect, this initiated a significant wave of conversions from many Christians and Jews who wished to protect their standing on property. Quote, Many of the Christians and Jews, from their chiefs down to the lowest of them, denied their face on account of this, and they did not endure patiently this disgrace and affliction. A conversion wave that decisively tipped the population dynamics of medieval Egypt, where before a Coptic tax officer would somewhat equally collect taxes from Muslims and Christians, now he would be mostly collecting taxes from Muslim farmers. This will breed a lot of resentment, which will be further stoked by the holy wars of the Crusades, a dynamic that would culminate in 1250 AD and another population collapse similar to the one after the Bashmurite revolts of the 8th century, which will take the Copts' percentage of the population to its modern levels of less than 10% of Egyptians. And something to emphasize here, even if a Christian or Jew did not convert because of Al-Hakim's decree, they went out of their way to dress, talk, and imitate Muslims to avoid being targeted. So, whatever little pockets of Coptic persisted, as well as any Coptic cultural norms, were gone by this point. So yeah, Al-Hakim random cruelty was way, way more significant than the much more famous Great Persecution that started off the Coptic calendar. This one, you can argue, actually worked. For the most part, anyway. You see, on the ground, the distinctive clothing and the sitting apart from the larger population made life extremely difficult for openly Christian or Jewish families. In a city in the Delta, where Michael our bishop is from, Tennis, we are told that when a Christian would walk in the street, quote, 
the inhabitants would insult him and would say to him, Break this cross and enter into the all-embracing religion. You try and take a boat instead? Well, we get this description from a carpenter. Quote, The people crowded around me and buffeted me and said to me, O dog, O vile one, O Christian, depart from us. They spat on me and inflicted on me every sort of torment. So, this wasn't an elite or a bishop or anyone important. This was a carpenter going to do his job. And the damage was not done by someone in the army or an official. No, it was the everyday man. So yeah, this is definitely a greater persecution. Which brings us back to Zechariah, the imprisoned patriarch on the tail end of things. A point where Al-Hakim was probably bored and was more or less using the patriarch as an entertainment. In Cairo, where the patriarch was imprisoned, we get a throwback to a thousand years earlier, the days of Nero. Apparently, Al-Hakim's circle decided that Zechariah as a food for lions would greatly amuse the caliph. And a note on the historicity of that account. We get this from Michael, who was a child when it happened. So, sort of an eyewitness. Uh, not to mention, he didn't really think very high of Zechariah, but respected his piety. So I don't think it's an embellished legend. Rather, it is completely within the character of Al-Hakim to do something like that. But anyway, when Zechariah was given to the lions, the lions yawned lazily and left the patriarch alone. Al-Hakim was not amused and concluded that the lion's caretaker was bribed to feed the lion. And so, he tried again, this time with extra measures to make sure that the lions were hungry. But again, the lions were not interested in Zechariah. In response, Al-Hakim ordered the jailers to torture Zechariah until he converts to Islam, but more or less moved on. The jailers, not really the type who go above and beyond, mostly tried psychological intimidation on Zechariah, with occasional physical violence every now and then. But naturally, the guy just came from a lion's den, so he did not convert. Three months later, while Hakim had basically lost all interest, one of his favorite merchants, a Muslim who sympathized with the patriarch and the Christians, intervened. Basically, he waited until Al-Hakim was in a generous mood and then suggested to him that releasing everybody who was in jail would make him a very popular figure. The streets would celebrate the wisdom and the mercy of their caliph. Liking the sound of that, Al-Hakim issued a decree on the spot freeing everybody who was in jail. And so, Zechariah was released. Also, he was not necessarily free. 
Afraid of the Caliph and his unpredictable mood swings, he immediately went to the desert and hid in the monasteries from everybody. For the next nine years, he did not appear in public. So we're talking about an absence from 1011 to 1020. Al-Hakim never pursued the monasteries in the desert too aggressively, as it would have came with a set of complications. The monks there were paying Bedouin Arabs protection money, and the caliph was not really interested in chasing Bedouins around the desert or straightening the pilgrimage routes trade caravans that go through there. Like I said, he was not naive or stupid, just cruel and emotional. As a side bonus of this dynamic, a tradition developed during this time where Christians from all over Egypt would travel to the monasteries to attend liturgy and take communion just twice a year. In the Feast of Epiphany in late January and in Easter in April slash May. That's it. That was the only time where a Christian would ever enter a church during Al-Hakim's reign. In the meantime, with the absence of the patriarch and the destruction of any official church hierarchy, unofficial holy men started to become very popular to the Christian population that was under heavy pressure. One such holy man is an ex-government official named Bukhaira, who ended up in jail after one of Al-Hakim's purges. Eventually released, he devoted his life to visiting the prisons and acts of charity, which was time, earned him the reputation of a holy man. Further, he came across the remains, the skull to be specific of St. Mark, a very valuable relic that really raised his profile throughout the whole of Egypt. And, since we are on this topic, there is a very intriguing side story to our narrative about the relics of St. Mark in Venice. This side story is going to be our next Patreon exclusive episode, where we are going to do some historical investigation about the relics that Bukhaira have come across versus the ones that were in Venice, where, at this point in our narrative, a great cathedral was being built to house them. The construction of the San Mark Cathedral in Venice started in 978 and ended in 1092. So literally, we're in a sick event. And to add to the intrigue, the relics of St. Mark were, quote-unquote, rediscovered in 1094 in Venice. So yeah, it's a quite a mystery, where popular tourist history have obscured a fascinating world of medieval relics and international heists. Anyway, for now, just remember the name Bukhaira. He would be important for our next scheduled episode. I'll try my best to do the San Mark Relics episode and the next normal narrative episode within the normal two weeks timeline. But it may be a bit delayed, as I'm going into a rabbit hole 
and I'm not exactly sure where it will end. Lastly, you may have noticed advertising in the beginning of this episode. Coptic Voice is growing, and we're always working on new projects. I'm proud that the audience of this podcast is quite unique. If you want to advertise with Coptic Voice, which includes multiple channels, not just a podcast, feel free to reach out at jonathan at copticvoiceus.com. I'm a big believer of independently funded, sustainable nonprofits, where we can stay objectively focused on the truth, rather than be bold in any certain directions by a big donation source. And so, doing advertisement that makes sense is part of that vision. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time.